Welcome to today's Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. And I'm Mark Lashier. And thanks, guys, for having me on the show again. Love to join you. And today we're taking on a fairly big topic, um, what I would call Atlantic Canada's dependence on the generosity of other Canadians to uh, make it through life. Um, you both remember a few years ago, um, Prime Minister Harper uh, called our region, um, uh, you know, a culture of defeat and it caused an uproar. A lot of people were offended. And uh, I remember thinking at the time, well, you know, let's, I wonder what he's really referring to. And I consider it just a misuse of a word. I, I actually believe that we suffer from a culture of dependence. We depend on the generosity of other Canadians a great deal through equalization payments, through transfer payments, through uh, employment insurance. Uh, and, um, and without that, we would, uh, I guess, be worse off. But as Frank McKenna indicated in our podcast with him, it also left us a bit vulnerable um, to that generosity and less self-sufficient. And um, he made a good point that, uh, that indicated that perhaps we would be better off not to be so dependent on those transfers. And one of the things that I've noticed in the last few months, I don't know if you guys have as well, is that I have a lot of conversations with people who indicate that it, it's hard to uh, convince people to work uh, when they have programs in place that make it easier not to work. Uh, the easing of the EI rules during the, uh, the pandemic is a good example of that. And we'll talk about that a little later. Uh, but, you know, individual programs like CERB um, have caused people to be able to make decisions to say, I prefer not to work. I did a presentation um, earlier this week to a YPO group, and almost universally they indicated that they were having trouble recruiting people. And that's especially true in the uh, food and beverage uh, industry, the hospitality industry. And um, I, I had a second experience earlier this week where I was uh, up golfing at, at Cabot Links and their main dining room is, is closed because uh, they can't find people to work. And, you know, a major resort, not able to find people in a generally depressed area for employment uh, is an indication of a challenge I think that we have in, in our system. So, you know, we're going to talk a little bit today, led by Mark, about uh, equalization, transfer payments, and social programs that might be doing our region, region a little bit more harm than good in the long term. And I'm sure it will uh, cause some controversy as a result of this conversation. Mark, yeah, I'd like to you. just I'd like to just jump in, if you don't mind, first, Mark, because I I do want to make a couple of points. One is I'm not 100% sure it's generosity, because generosity implies they have a say over the matter, and they don't. These are federal programs, so so it's not individual generosity. It's generosity maybe in in the generic sense. And I would just also say I'm more interested in the implications, like you, your, the last part, part of your monologue, like around work, around a culture of, of development and so on. I'm more interested in the implications than I am the actual like support. Because no matter where you go in the country, if you go into northern Ontario, the folks in the south complain they're subsidizing the north. If you go to Saskatchewan, no, nah, that's not a good example. If you go to Manitoba... <laughs> You know the folks in Winnipeg will say they're they're, they're subsidizing the people in rural uh, Manitoba. If you go right anywhere in the country, with some exceptions, rural Saskatchewan is actually driving the economic growth in that province. So I do think that artificial provincial boundaries, when you're talking about a national country, is a bit tricky. Although we do have very distinct roles for provincial governments and so on, but I, I do think the implications of what you're talking about. And just one last thing, Don, you're you're. Um, you're admitting your age here because I think Harper said that like 20 years ago, well. not, a, not a couple of years ago, but anyway, over to you, Mark. I think it was, I think it was sometime, it was sometime between in the early 2000s. Yeah. So around, around 20 years ago, I remember that. And I remember it well too. So I might be giving my age away as, as well here. Um, 
you know, one of the things I'd like to start us off with is just, you know, a bit of a conversation around, you know, how we got here, you know, in the sense that, you know, I'm listening to you, Don, and listening to you, David, and I'm thinking, and I'm sure that you know, you guys know this uh, as well or better than me, you know, the intention of, of these programs, whether we're talking about equalization, we're talking about EI, is to pr- try to provide this, you know, universal standard of living across the country, uh, you know, from BC to, you know, to Newfoundland and urban and rural and, you know, it's meant to provide income supports to allow people uh, in vulnerable situations in smaller communities to have an acceptable standard of living to the equalization payments are designed to make sure that we have access to the same level of health services, for example, across the country. So the, and what I mean by that, obviously, is that the principle of all this, right, is, is, is fairness and equal distribution of, of wealth and services. But obviously, you know, listening to you guys talk, and, and thinking about Harper's uh, comment around the culture culture of defeat um, that rubs so many Atlantic Canadians the wrong way uh, is where do we where do we go wrong here? What is that right balance between uh, making sure that and it's the same thing in New Brunswick around equal opportunity that was the intention, right? Uh, where did we where do we kind of go wrong in the balance tipping from making sure that we all have access to the same supports to that kind of culture of, of defeat and, and not pulling up our own socks and providing our own high standard of living in terms of wages, in terms of access to services? Well, you know, equalization um, has been in place since 1957, I believe, a long, long time. Um, it was uh, made a constitutional right under the Canada Act of 19, 1982. There were changes made last made in 2009. Um, uh, there, there needs to be renegotiation of that agreement. Uh, I think uh, before 2023, and 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 as you point out, Mark, it was for a good purpose. It really had dealt with the fiscal capacity of a province to generate sufficient revenue from its various forms of taxation to provide equal services uh, to their citizens. So the purpose was, uh, was correct. I think what, what has happened um, uh, uh, over the years is that people have lost sight of, uh, of the generosity of that program, which means sharing, sharing the, the wealth to ensure a, a reasonably um, good standard of living for all Canadians, regardless of where they lived. And I think the politicians have mis, uh, misled uh, people recently about why that was necessary in the first place. And, it, you know, it's not just the, the Maritimes. You know, there are six provinces that uh, rely on, on uh, equalization payments. Um, and curiously, Newfoundland and Labrador is not one of them uh, because of their resource base. It's complicated, and I think that that's the other, other part of the problem. But as you know, Province of Alberta is, uh, and the Western Province in general, are, are feeling it's really they, you know, they paid a disproportionate share of the burden of equalization. Um, but to be clear to our listeners, it's not provinces that are paying equalization; it's individual taxpayers and corporations. It's it's uh, it's Canadians that paying into this fund, and it's based on uh, income. So if you have a lot of high income earners in a place like Alberta, of course, uh, they pay exactly the same federal tax rates as somebody living in Atlantic Canada. They, they pay the same amount into the equalization pool. So it's not unfair from that point of view. What's, what's unfair is that, you know, there's a lot more people with a lot more wealth in Western Canada making a contribution. And we don't have as many in uh, Atlantic Canada to make up that difference. And so people need to know the basis of equalization, first of all, before they can make a decision whether it's good or bad. And by the way, uh, equalization has been going up every year forever. So it's an important part of every budget, uh, certainly for the three maritime provinces. And, uh, you know, we become dependent on that money. There's no question about it. And uh, we can have a long conversation about what we need to do to reduce that dependency, I think. And I think it was Sean Graham's uh, Liberal government, David, in New Brunswick, who actually uh, had a stated goal 
to wean the province off equalization. I remember doing survey uh, work at that time that showed the vast majority of New Brunswick, New Brunswickers favored that because you know what? In the end, we don't like to have the label "have not" um, you know uh, attached to our province, and uh, and 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 people generally want to be independent. So I think that that's kind of the challenge that uh, that we're facing in this region. Yeah, just on the on the Sean Graham plan to get rid of equalization, there was a professor at UNB that crunched the numbers and said that we would have to grow the double the size of the economy overnight. In other words, double the size of the, the, the economy, but keep costs at the same level in order to eliminate equalization. So really, um, the idea of eliminating equalization hinges only on two things. One, some really long-term strategy, 30, 40 years, or uh, something like a massive oil and gas industry, which we never really had. We had a little natural gas thing that happened and got stuff snuffed out. But a massive, like like Newfoundland and Labrador, as you indicated, is not actually a, a receiver of equalization because of the success of the offshore oil and gas industry. Of course, the third option would be the federal government changing the equalization program and, and, and squeezing us out. But I will just make a couple of introductory remarks myself, because if you look at a country like Brazil, the difference in GDP per capita between the richest state in uh, Sao Paulo and the poorest state in the Northeast, it's a multiple of 10 to 15 times. It depends on uh, a lot of factors. But the bottom line is you're looking at sort of $200 ahead GDP per capita in a poor state in the North, and you're looking at 30,000, yeah, not 30,000, you're looking at 18 or 17,000 per head in Sao Paulo. And so the purpose of equalization and other thinking in Canada was we're all Canadians. We should all have a similar uh, standard of living in terms of access to public services and road and highway infrastructure and so on. And even in the U.S., the difference between the poorest state and the richest state is much higher than in Canada. In Canada, it's about the last time I looked, it's about 60 or 70 percent. Alberta has a GDP per capita of somewhere in the 70 to 80,000 and we're around 40 something. So the, the, so maybe nearly double. But the bottom line is the spread is not nearly as high as a lot of other countries. And that actually, I think, is a good thing because it says we're all in this together as Canadians. But the bad, um, the downside of that has been that we've not been interested collectively in developing certain industries that we thought we were uncomfortable with. There's just not that sense of urgency that, that you, the way you see in, in the Western provinces uh, and in some other countries like the U.S. and elsewhere, this this sort of sense of urgency that we need to keep a strong economic growth rate so that we can pay for public services, we can sustainably pay for public services. And in this region, there's always been that thought, well, you know, yeah, maybe not. If we grow at 0.5 forever, that's fine because we've got the federal government over there and they'll just sort of pump in more money. And I think, Don, your point is you're worried that, and Richard Sion and others as well, that, that that gravy train might be coming to an end with the elimination or the significant reduction in oil and gas revenue coming out of Alberta. Yeah, and I think that the other thing that the Western provinces are going to be looking for in the, re <clears throat> the renegotiation is uh, a plan that provinces currently receiving equalization um, develop their natural resources in a similar manner to what the Western provinces are doing, especially those related to oil and gas, like and, and shale shale gas, for instance, uh, in, in New Brunswick, and and they're also going to, I think, insist that uh, that there's a national energy corridor, corridor to provide them access for their oil and gas uh, uh, landlocked oil and gas uh, reserves to a world market, and. Uh, that might be really good for Atlantic Canada, by the way. You know, having an Energy East pipeline would be a benefit to this region. And of course, they have to convince Quebec, the largest recipient of <laughs> equalization funds by a mile in the country, that it, it's, it's in their interest to um, secure that energy corridor. So I think it's those kinds of things that will, will happen in the renegotiation. And because right now, of course, um, Alberta's being can't 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 collect on any equalization because they have so much coming from the oil and gas uh, area, which is exempted from uh, from the calculation. Basically, it's not just oil and gas. Like in Nova Scotia, we've seen a, a having 
of the GDP from the forestry sector. We're just not cutting as many trees in Nova Scotia anymore. There's a big pushback, as you know, Don, against uh, aquaculture. There's been a number of projects, uh, but but there's also a lot of very pristine, nice, beautiful homes along the water, and they don't want aquaculture <laughs> off their shore. So, and that's that's just Nova Scotia. New Brunswick has its own set of challenges there when it comes to natural resources development. But the bottom line is, oil and gas is one thing, but we're seeing less interest in in harvesting trees. We're seeing less interest in mining. Nova Scotia a bit different on mining, but and then and then aquaculture as well. So it's a broader discussion around how do you use your natural resources to foster economic development uh, in an era where half your population is either retired or going to be retired in the next few years. That's that's a that's part of our discussion, and that's part of my thinking and Don's too. Is how do you how do you support a strong and prosperous Atlantic Canada moving forward without reasonably developing your natural resources? In, in some ways, it, 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 it takes me back to thinking about, you know, comment around culture of defeat and, 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 and self-reliance and kind of what I'm hearing from you guys is not so much a, you know, a reform of, of the equalization program itself, but a cultural issue that's both political and community-based in Atlanta, Canada, where, and I think to a certain degree, I think back to the conversation that you guys had with with uh, Frank McKenna last week. And, and, you know, he was very aggressive and kind of bullish on, on, on a a lot of issues, you know, from uh, being, you know, uh, looking ahead to taking down provincial barriers on trade and, and being assertive on that and still looking at natural resources development. I mean, he's one of those, he's one of those guys who, you know, won't, go with the kind of popular trends and the popular conversation away from having those tough conversations about whether we should have things like pipelines or developing shale gas in New Brunswick. Um, it, it sounds from talking to you guys like the issue is is cultural here still, which goes to well, Harper's comment, right? Well, uh, again, I don't, I don't think we have, we're not defeated as a people. No, we're I don't just, mean it that way. It's, it's but, but it, we it's, are, may go to your comment about dependence, Don. No, it is the dependence, and that is that has become cultural. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll talk about EI in a second, and and that we'll be able to give some examples of that. But uh, uh, you know, it, it's quite clear that uh, there's going to be a renegotiation of the equalization uh, agreement. They're going to be, um, and the West has a fair amount of power compared to when it was last changed economic power, and they will insist on changes in terms of how maritime provinces in particular, uh, you know, harvest their natural resources so that they, they, they pull their weight in a similar way that the Western provinces are in terms of harvesting their natural resources. Otherwise, they're going to say, why should we, why should we fund um, your economy when, when you're making choices based on our transfer of wealth. And I think that that's going to be the key in the renegotiation. Don't forget demographics. There was a, uh, there yeah. still is a big molybdenum tungsten mine being proposed for the Stanley area. And a journalist went out there and found a coffee shop and stuck a mic in the face of everybody in this coffee shop and said, what do you think of this big mining project? And it was basically ambivalent. Like one lady said, there's no job. There's nobody, nobody out here needs, needs work. You're going to have to bring people in. Right. So that we, yeah. you know, 30 or 40 years in the 70s, if you were going to bring 600 high paying jobs into Stanley, that would have been like the most the best political thing you could have ever done for that area. You would you would have the love of the voter for decades. And now that's like, eh, meh, whatever. Where's my health care? So I do think that, that the demographics does matter. Uh, and, and I think, you know, nimbyism matters. And I think, you know, as we move forward, we have to have a conversation with all New Brunswickers about the fact that all development provides a little bit of discomfort. All those cranes on the waterfront in Halifax is, is annoying to everybody that lives there because they got to look out the window and see cranes all day and, and construction. But they understand or many of them understand it's for the greater good to be continuing to grow Halifax as a hub. So no development is without some level of uh, discomfort and we need to be more comfortable with discomfort so if we just want to sit in our homes and re- you know retire and play golf and shuffleboard that's not the future 
that I want, and I think it's pretty well not the future that Don wants, although he does play a lot of golf, and I'm not sure about that. <laughs> Question for, for both of you. Where, uh, that's just in my head as we're chatting. Where do the four Atlantic provinces uh, sit roughly in terms of how, how much, how dependent uh, we are on the transfer payments in terms of our yearly operational budgets for the governments? Yep. Like how, how serious is this problem? PEI number one, Nova, uh, New Brunswick number two, Nova Scotia number three, Quebec number four, and then from there, I don't know. But yeah, PEI, it's always been more dependent. It's getting better because of the growth they've had, but they've always been dependent. And in terms of the ratios, I haven't looked at it in a couple of years. It's not maybe as high as you would think. I think equalization is about 15% of total revenues. It's a, It's... That's right. Yeah. All transfer payments, Don, you may know these numbers. All transfer payments are like 40% of the New Brunswick budget, but I think equalization might be under 20 yeah, in terms I, of total revenue. Last time I looked, it's uh, it's in the sort of high teens um, for the three provinces receiving the, the transfer payment. So it's not inconsequential. One out of $7 spent comes from uh, equalization in the Maritimes. Um, of course, uh, Newfoundland gets... Uh, gets nothing at the moment until this week until this week where they got a 5.2 billion dollar injection into their <laughs> fiscal problem it, in in terms of uh you know so, solutions to this especially the you know the larger uh conversation around how dependent we are and how new you know atlantic canadians see this problem you had mentioned that you know Sean Graham had had talked about this you know aggressively when he when he was in when he was in office. Is there a conversation to be had around political benchmarking, you know, in, in the four provinces around making making this a public conversation and, and doing some goal setting around developing our economies to make ourselves less dependent? Well, I, you know, I've as you know, I tracked governments for a long time in Atlantic Canada. And uh, I was always struck by the fact that nobody wanted to talk about the have not status that we enjoyed. (laughs) You know, there was no discussion about, well, you know, what do we what do we have to do to move away from being a have not region? Uh, Sean Graham was really the first that took that on that I can remember uh, in a serious manner. And as David mentioned, it, it, it's not something that you turn around overnight. It's a long term process, but you have to start that process. And he tried to start that process. I know that he had the support of New Brunswickers based on research that I conducted for that because people did not want to be dependent, the, the, the majority of them. Some do enjoy it, but the, 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 most don't want to be feel dependent on uh, you know others' uh, others' uh, generosity, if you put it that way. So I think there should be more conversations in general by our political leadership to, to start to say, look, we need to be – a full paying member of the Federation, or at least get as close to it as possible. Now, the difficulty that we've had in this region, as uh, you both know, is that our economic growth has been very weak compared to the rest of the country. We're starting to understand why it's been weak. It's not because we don't have good people or educated, trained people. It's really because our populations uh, have really been stagnant, relatively speaking, to the rest of the country for a long time. And the lack of population growth has really held back this region. Now, we, we see that, uh, with possible exception of Newfoundland Labrador, which is going in reverse, that our populations are growing at a normal level compared to the rest of the country, which means that we will get the benefit of, of population growth in our economic growth numbers. Because guess what? A 1% increase in, in, in the population means there's one more percent of the people that need to be housed and fed at a minimum. minimum. Look at our housing challenges that we face across the the maritime provinces in particular as a result of it. That creates economic activity. Uh, And and as we raise our economic activity to more of the national level, uh, we have a a road ahead to become uh, less dependent on transfer payments. And, uh, you know, by having higher paid jobs, um, more people working, all those good things. So, I feel optimistic that this would be a good time for politicians to to seize the moment and say, you know, we hope that we become less of a have-not province or region in the next, pick a number, 20 years, with continued growth of our population and our economies. 
and get get the conversation going because I think the vast majority of citizens living in this region would aspire to be, um, uh, you know, not a have-not province. And so I think that that's, that's an opportunity. We do need political leadership because, Mark, as you mentioned, there's a cultural thing that's been going on here for a really, really long time. You know, we, our, our definition of what a normal economy is, is different from almost anybody else in the country as a result. And, uh, and our dependence on, on government is a good example. We have a higher dependence on government for almost everything in this region relative to every other part of the country, with the exception of perhaps Quebec. Yeah, so I, I would just say the problem is that one of our challenges as a result of many, many years of weakness is that we actually have much higher tax rates than a lot right. of other places, particularly at the higher income level. So we have a 10% provincial sales tax, uh, Ontario's eight, Alberta's zero. Uh, we have our tax rates at the lower end of the income distribution are similar to the rest of the country, but when you get over $100,000 in income a year, the tax rates are considerably higher than some other provinces. And in fact, the people moving in at that higher uh, salary level know, notice this and they're quite concerned about it. And in fact, I've been talking to ITHR managers this week and many of them are saying that that high tax rate is a barrier. Now, if, if New Brunswick or Atlanta, Canada came along and said, hey, we're going to cut taxes for rich people, uh, you know, the rest of the country would cry bloody blue murder. So I think we do, we are at a bit of a disadvantage on things like taxes, even property taxes. I don't know about Nova Scotia, but in New Brunswick, you know, the people moving here are saying the rates here are about double what they are in other urban centers across the country. Now that's the rate. Of course, what you actually pay is lower because your assessed value is lower up till recently, of course, with the recent housing boom. But my point is that as we want to grow our economy, Don and Mark, if we have these very high relative tax rates, it makes it that much harder. Well, again, that gets back to lack of population growth, uh, David, as you know. When you have the same pool of uh, taxpayers available, but the budgets go up every year, you know, the source of income it remains unchanged. And with having, um, you know, a growing economy with more people working and a bigger pool of taxpayers, the, the, the pace of increase of taxes sl should slow and hopefully Maybe even there's an opportunity once we get back to some level of sanity in terms of balanced budgets, uh, start to uh, recite a, a, a little bit. Uh, at least that would be my hope. It's probably a good opportunity there to, to, to shift the conversation to a discussion of population and labor supply uh, and, and the issue of EI uh, and where we stand, you know, coming out of the, out of the pandemic in terms of you know, people's reliance on, on income supports right now. Um, David, do you want to set the stage for where we are on that? Sure. So one of the things that happened coming in the last few months, even going back to later on in 2020, is businesses started to say, wait a minute, I can't find workers. And this was heavily at the services industry and, and maybe lower wage industries like manu manufacturing, assembly lines, things like that but even the transportation sector. So we started to hear businesses saying, you know, even though the unemployment rate is really high, it's very hard to find workers. And so the, the federal government converted the CERB program, this, this, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit Program from a set rate of 2000 a month to what they called enhanced employment insurance. And this maybe helped a bit, but not much. If you look at the numbers, and I, I just pulled these for this podcast in May, uh, of 2021, there were 210,000 people collecting EI across Atlantic Canada. And if you look at May of 2019, so pre-pandemic, there were only 109. So there's 100 and, over 100,000 more people now across the region uh, collecting EI, even as we have businesses clamoring for workers. So I think the, the, the bad news there is that these programs are working in terms of lots of people using them. The good news is that they're, I think they're going to wind that program down by the fall across the country. And then that hopefully those 100,000, many of them will come back to work. But the bottom line is what we did was we created this um, income support program, which for many people was lucrative enough that they decided I'm not going to go back into the workforce. And that put a ton of pressure on the labor market. So the question for us moving forward is, is will this reduction in EI uh, bring some normalcy to the labor market? But then as, as Don and I and Mark, we've been talking ever since we started Insights, what's that 
pathway to attract that many more people to our region so we can actually grow the workforce in a sustainable way. So I think what I'm trying to tell you is in the short term, we have an EI issue that's hurting uh, or, or clogging up the talent pipeline. But in the long run, we still have this desire, or this need uh, to bring lots of people to our shores to work in our labor market. Yeah, are, are you optimistic that we're going to see a return to normal, either you or Don, um, coming out of the pandemic? Or so is this going to be a bit of a rocky road? I'd love to hear Don weigh in, but I will say this. There's something across North America going on, and they've, they've titled it The Great Resignation. I don't know if you've seen this yet. It's a new little catchy term that people are using. A lot of people have had time to think during the pandemic, and, uh, and they're quitting uh, in large numbers. Uh, and it's scaring companies all across North America, and it's called the Great Resignation. So I worry a little bit that that's going to be part of the labor market adjustment in our region as well, that people are going to say, like, twisted sister, we're not going to take it. Uh, and they're going to actually uh, quit their jobs uh, because they just don't like them anymore. Uh, so I think there's going to be discussions about do we need to raise wages? Like, how do we, how do we coax these folks back into these jobs or back into the labor market? even after the, the enhanced EI goes away, because I think, yeah, I mean, people have had a lot of time to think about things and a lot of them are, are not very um, interested in going back to the jobs that they were working in before. And that's not just an Atlantic Canada problem, but it's exacerbated here because of our talent, underlying talent pipeline challenges. I've said for a while that we're slowly but uh, surely moving to a national um, compensation uh, scale uh, to compete for resources, especially given our high tax status in this region. Uh, I've heard people coming to the region who've insisted on a higher uh, rate of pay than was uh, advertised to make up for the difference in taxation rates. So, you know, there is a problem there. Uh, one of the other, uh, I think, problems is how easy it is to qualify for EI. So, under normal times, you know, here's how it works. Uh, if you live in a, in a region where unemployment is 6% or less, you would need 700 hours of insurable uh, work. That's about 20, 20 weeks at 35 hours a week to qualify. If you live in a region that has an unemployment rate of 13% or more, the qualifying time is reduced to 428 hours or 12 weeks. Uh, regardless, you are eligible for up to 50 weeks of benefit that total at least, I think, $500 a week. So, you know, it's not that hard to qualify. Now, during the pandemic, those requirements have been significantly reduced to only 120 hours, 3.5 weeks. And these reduced requirements are in place until uh, September. So, you know, uh, for some people, it's a pretty good alternative to working. And uh, uh, the, other, the other requirement, by the way, is that uh, there are supposed to be biweekly reporting requirements to support the efforts of those out of week, work to find new employment with failure to do so, resulting in loss of benefits. <laughs> There's really no evidence that these requirements are being um, enforced at all. Well, I, I understand that during a pandemic, but in normal times, either the program is meant to do what it's supposed to do or it's, a, it's an income supplement program. You know, you have to choose. It's not an employment uh, program. It's an income supplement program. One of the things that frustrates me about the EI program, of course, is a few years ago, they decided that university and college students could start collecting EI while they were going to school. Uh, and so a lot did. Surprise, surprise. And they're not working while they're going to school because they're collecting EI benefits. And Kel surprise, everybody's worried about youth unemployment. Well, you literally set it up so that youth unemployment would be, uh, you know, significantly higher than it otherwise would because a lot of them are now collecting EI. So the number of people on EI that are between the ages of 15 and 29, I've just got that data here, uh, it's risen fat, much faster than the population above that age group. So between the ages of 15 and 29, there's been a 136% increase in the number on EI. So there's now 56,000 young people on EI across Atlantic Canada even as employers are crying out for more and more workers. So, you know, Don's right. You know, they, they've made it, many of them have made a calculated decision that, that this is a better path for them to collect the EI than to go out and, and, uh, and get into the workforce. Now, just to put it, not confuse the issue with facts, um, in Canada in 2018, uh, these are numbers that David provided me, 
12% of those earning income report, uh, at least a portion of those that earned income uh, were EI benefits. So, you know, it's a pretty, you know, significant number as a percentage of the population. In Newfoundland, in Labrador, that number was 34%, the highest in the country. One out of three had uh, used EI at some time during the year. In PEI, that year it was 29%. Uh, New Brunswick, it was 25%. And Nova Scotia was the lowest at 19%. Um, and just to go a little further, if you look at our census metropolitan areas, and uh, we only have a few of them here, um, the numbers are more in line with the Canadian averages. Uh, you get outside the CMAs and the CAs, and it's, you know, it's a different story. So, for an example, the dependence on EI benefits is significantly higher in what I would call rural uh, Newfoundland, where 50%, 50% report receiving EI benefits as part of their total income. That drops to 42% on the island, 36% in New Brunswick and 25% on uh, uh, in Nova Scotia. So it's a big part of our culture in this region, bigger than almost anywhere else. Um, another thing that I, just to put it in perspective, proportionally, EI is not a big deal in Canada. It represents less than 2%, I believe, of total earned income. So it's, that's not a problem on the Canadian-wide uh, basis. But it's over 8% in Newfoundland. It's, that's worth a billion dollars of EI coming into Newfoundland every year, $1 billion. In, in PEI in, in 2018, it was over 7%. Uh, in, in New Brunswick, slightly over 5%, and, and almost 4% in, um, in Nova Scotia. So, you know, it, it plays a big role. Um, and and the, the problem that I have with EI is that it's being misused and misabused by a portion of our workforce. And it's certainly, it's become a subsidization program, in my opinion, and I'm going to get a lot of hate coming about this comment for sure. But if you look at uh, the farming uh, sector, you look at forestry uh, sector, you look at the fishing sector, you know, they depend on the availability of seasonal workers. They, you know, it's to their advantage to have people waiting to work for four or five months a year uh, because they don't have to employ them 12 months a year. But that that availability of seasonal work is on um, uh, as a result of uh, being subsidized through EI programs. And, uh, you know, there's a proportion of those people who are really quite comfortable with that that sort of work style where they work a certain uh part of the year and then uh, don't work. And as David uh, and I know, this actually hurts our GDP. If you have a portion of your workforce, a higher portion of your workforce, not working 12 months a year, that means they're not contributing uh, to the economy through higher taxes and, and, and all those other things that go along with full employment. And I think that uh, I think David, you have you, you make a good point about seasonal uh, workers and, and 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 the unemployment rate. Maybe you want to talk about that. So I did a paper for the Public Policy Forum a couple of years ago, so I'm very familiar with all of these arcane program uh, attributes. And one of the problems is that you need to have a high unemployment rate, as Don indicated, to have to get a lower number of weeks to make you eligible for the program. So you actually like a high unemployment rate, and the reality is that everybody that's in a seasonal job is considered unemployed from the perspective of the labor force survey and from the perspective of the employment insurance program. So if you were to take them out, one of the recommendations I made in the paper was take everybody that's in a seasonal job out of that number. So yes, they're unemployed, but because we know they're going to start working, you know, two months from now, they're not really looking for work. So pull them out. But that would push unemployment rates down in places like, let's say, the northeastern New Brunswick from 14, 15 percent down to six or seven percent. And then the whole system gets messed up because now you get then you got to work twice as many weeks or significantly more weeks to get access to your EI. So that messes up the whole thing for them. So you have to redesign the entire program because the program right now is set up so that, you know, and it, it makes logic sense. Right. If you have a very high, high unemployment rate, you, you don't have to work as many weeks. 
and because of this high unemployment rate, you have more weeks to look for work, right? You can be on EI longer because it, you have more time to look for work, but that's not the problem, right? The problem is you have a lot of people that are seasonally employed. So I, I think that's really our challenge here is, is even if you support the EI program, and Don doesn't, and I'm not a big fan of it either, but even if you support it, you have to sort of park it to the side when you're looking at solving labor force issues in these areas, because we have companies clamoring for workers in these areas and they can't find them. And then the federal government comes along and says, well, you've got a 13% unemployment rate. We're not going to help you. You, you can't have any immigrants, right? Or, or you can't, when you do your LMIAs for temporary foreign workers, well, you really don't need those temporary foreign workers because you've got thousands of people unemployed. Well, but they're not available for work. And I think in the last three or four years, the federal government has actually figured this out. And they've been much more flexible with immigration and with temporary foreign workers, I think, than they were in the past. Because it's just these people are not available for work. It, you know, and we've talked about this uh, many, many times. Obviously, if you came in and offered them $150,000 a year, they'd take the job. So when, we, when I say they're not available for work, what I'm saying is they're not available for work at the subway or at the Irving gas station or on the assembly line at the local manufacturing plant or to drive a, a, you know, a, a delivery truck. That's what they're not available for or, or to work in a retail shop. So many of them would come out of the EI thing if, if they could get a really high paying job, but that's just not the reality that they face. So on that, I have a couple of questions for, for you guys around, because part of what we're having here is a conversation around rural and urban economic development, right? In, in terms of how high the rates are in rural areas and the challenges that are faced around seasonal work. But it also makes me think of, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that, but First, I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, where where wages sit right now and, and where the minimum wages are. Right. Um, we do know that obviously the, the you know, so the federal support programs were quite generous. And in a lot of cases, people made more money by staying home. That's that could be a reflection on the, the generosity of the support programs. But it may also be an indication that our minimum wages and our low wages are just too low for people to build sustainable, happy lives, right? And we're having this conversation around, you know, North America and around the world around uh, living wages and, 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 and fair wages. And, you know, and I, I, a conversation I, almost, I often think of guys is like, in the, I know it, I'm true of a lot of people, but in the last several years, I've become a big Costco shopper. And uh, one of the things that I noticed shortly after I became a Costco shopper was how superior the customer service was. <laughs> And, you know, lo and behold, they're paid more, they have benef better benefits programs, and they have uh, better programs to allow people to, you know, move up in that in that company. Um, you know, and it made me reflect a lot on the fact that we might just not be paying people enough to solve part of this problem. Where do you guys sit in terms of that minimum wage issue and how it relates to the conversation that we're having? I hope you don't have a buy local sticker on the back of your uh, 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 Volkswagen uh, uh, minivan. Um, yeah, because that's the problem, right? We run into this situation where the local retailers pay minimum wage or slightly above. Costco comes in paying well above average, steals all the good labor and, you know, hurts a lot of local businesses. So I well, think it's also there's true of Loblaw, though, and Sobeys, right? So it's a. Uh... Sure. So what I'm trying to tell you is there's some nuance to this discussion around wages. I'd love to have Don's discussion. I will say the average uh, hourly uh, wage on offer as of the last job vacancy survey from Stats Canada in New Brunswick, it was over $20 an hour. In Nova Scotia, it was $21 an hour. In Newfoundland and Labrador, it was $21 an hour. And in Prince Edward Island, it was 19 bucks an hour. So there's very few jobs left at the minimum wage. There's some. I'm not. I'm not minimizing that. But it, there's very few jobs left in this region at the minimum wage. Now we can have a discussion around: is twenty dollars a reasonable wage, or is eighteen dollars a reasonable wage? And I think those discussions should be on the table. But what I'd like to say is those are national discussions because what Don said yesterday or earlier in this conversation about. Uh, wage is becoming more parity between this region and the rest of the country. He's absolutely right. In the last 10 years, there are now multiple sectors in New Brunswick where the average weekly wage is higher than it is nationally. Administrative services, the trucking sector, and a number of other sectors. So, so if you're just going to push up wages in Atlantic Canada by, by, by squeezing the labor market, 
uh, then we're just going to be uncompetitive with the rest of the country. So you need to have a national conversation about what are reasonable, fair living wages. And then you got to take students out of the equation because students don't necessarily need to make 20 bucks an hour while they're in school or while they're living at home in their parents' basement in high school. So this is one of the other things that frustrates me is that the number of adults that are trying to live on a minimum wage is very, very low. And the solution to that is the U.S. solution, which is a negative income tax rate, in my opinion, where you say even if they do have to live on a, on a minimum wage job, you you pump them full of income support so that they, their overall income rises to a decent wage. But I'd be interested to hear Don's comments on, on rising wages. Yeah, I, uh, I would just add a, a couple of things. I, I don't think the minimum wage is a problem. It's, it, it is a problem, but it's not the, it's not the solution uh, that we're looking for. The proportion of people that are, in, are trapped in low-paying jobs are trapped in those jobs for a couple of reasons. One, geography, where they live. And second, skills and education. I mean, that's, that's the dividing line between getting a, a, a living wage and a non-living wage. And uh, you know, we're, we're in the business in Canada of, of subsidizing people who can't make it on their own. And this is, this is happening in the labor force as well. Uh, but I think there's other things that we need to be looking at uh, uh, beyond wages. David's made all the key points. I mean, there's lots of pretty good paying jobs for people who are willing to work and have the skills to have those jobs. We should help people who do not have the skills with training and education to get them to the level to get those jobs. Uh, we've been doing that forever in Canada. But, you know, we can't get over the geography problem. And the geography problem is that if you live in a community where there just aren't the availability of full-time jobs, you're stuck in a cycle of seasonal work. And, um, you know, we've talked about the idea of creating economic hubs to allow people to uh, travel or commute a reasonable distance of full-time jobs. That's, what, that's a part of the solution, I would say. But people need to be willing to, to even commute a small distance. In Atlantic Canada, we have resistance to commuting, you know, 10 minutes for anything because that's what we become used to. If you live in a large metropolitan area in Canada, you're traveling up to an hour or more a day each way and it's nothing. Like, you know, so perspective in terms of the willingness of people to change their behaviors to, to accept a, a short commute for services as well as economic opportunities is part of the solution. The other part of the solution that I've been advocating for is that um, we have to admit that for a portion of the population, I don't know what that proportion is, David, but I, I, I'm estimating 2 to 3% of the labor force shouldn't be counted in the unemployment numbers. They should be taken out. They should be grandfathered. They should be go. They should go into the income supplement uh, category of support because either for their own personal reasons or because of geography, they are unwilling or can't work full time. So let's not count them the same way that we count them in the past. This will do what David has talked about, which will lower the unemployment rates in these regions and require a higher number of weeks to qualify, which I think is important for motivation and incentive to get to another place than where people currently are. I think that would be good. Uh, the other thing that I think is important is that we have to recognize in Canada that we've done a great job of bringing immigrants into this country, skilled immigrants, experienced immigrants. We, we're probably the best in the world at this, I think, in terms of qualifying the right people to come into the country. But I think it's now time to think about opening up a category for unskilled workers. People who are prepared to take the jobs that native Canadians are unwilling to take because they feel it's beneath them or it's not enough money for their you know, lack of skills or whatever. Uh, we need to allow uh, a category that comes in. And by the way, our forefathers were those kinds of people. They came in without skills. I mean, you know, they might have been a tradesperson or farmer or something like that, but they didn't have the kind of skills that we're looking for today. But guess what? Hard work and dedication, you know, a willingness to do what it takes to be successful was the key to growing Canada. And we need more of those people to come in who are willing to just roll up their sleeves, maybe work two jobs, you know, to get ahead because, you know, they're working for the future of their families. And I think that that would help as well. And then finally, I think that we also have to recognize that 
temporary foreign workers is a way to wean ourselves off the dependence that we have for so many on seasonal work. And uh, that is a solution that we have to be more serious about. And, and David made a point that you can't put seasonal workers in high unemployment areas, but we have to recognize that, you know, those people in high unemployment areas really aren't available for work, at least those kinds of jobs. So I think in that, that combination, we can start to change the culture, the expectations of the workforce. Um, and, oh, one other thing that I think is needed, we need to enforce the EI rules. It's supposed to be a temporary bridge between jobs. That's what it was meant to be. If you want to have uh, income subsidy programs to deal with a segment of the workforce, fine, but move it off the category of EI into a separate category and treat it differently. I think that that, that would recognize both the availability and the motivation of people uh, to actually work. On your uh, on the question of immigration, um, Don, and a question for you too, David. Is some of uh, so there there are a lot of unskilled workers coming in through the the Atlantic immigration pilot already, aren't there? So is some of that already happening in terms of the diversity of people coming into the province, the region. Let's say semi skilled. Um, yeah, the, it's still more. It's still difficult to find people at the at the lower end of the scale. You can still bring those people in through temporary foreign workers. And then you can convert them. There's there's pathways there, but a lot of the people, for example, for example, you must have a high school, at least a high school education, and you need to have a le- a, le- a minimal or the whatever some level of either English or French. And for a lot of these jobs, both of those are a hurdle for the folks that might want to come in and work those jobs. Right. And in fact, Jim Jim Irving in, in his interview, uh, you know, referenced the the the. the the standards that needed to bring in people like, you know, for this forestry operation, um, you know, they have to have a certain language skill uh, to get in yet. um, You know, once they're in, they're going to pick up the language uh, when they have a a specific skill. So, you know, there needs to be perhaps a review of the, uh, uh, of the requirements for uh, less skilled workers uh, that we need in this region. In fact, in the country overall. This has always been a complicated question, Mark, and people really chafe when you talk about bringing in immigrants to work lower wage jobs. Uh, immigrants even are not very comfortable with that. I'm sure a number listening to this will also be uncomfortable. So there's, I would just make a couple of points. One is what you're looking for is for people that it's a big leap forward for them to come to Canada and work in those jobs. So if you're in the Philippines and you're making you know, the equivalent of $1.50 an hour, and now you come to Canada and you can make the equivalent of $16 or $17 an hour, you know, it, it's a big leap forward. And then you can get educated and find, you know, look at your career uh, progression in other ways. So there's, there's, there's that. We've seen in the past, when you bring in highly skilled immigrants and they work jobs well below their skills and their expectation of wages, they don't stay anyway. So you really need to bring people in for which those jobs are actually aligned with their skills and for which their progression. And the other thing is you just can't get over the reality that there's going to always be a lot of jobs at, you know, $15 an hour, $18 an hour, $17 an hour. I looked at this a few years ago and the reality is in New Brunswick, and I didn't look at Nova Scotia, but I'm sure it's similar. In, in Toronto, you had an increase in the number of people earning less than $18 an hour over a five-year period. And in New Brunswick, you had a big decrease. So how is that possible? In Toronto, the highest cost, lo, cost of living location in Canada, you actually had more people. Well, some of those were students. Some of those were immigrants. Some of those were second income. Some of those, some of those, some of those, right? High school uh, kids. But at the end of the day, even in Toronto, you have a large segment of the workforce. There's around a million people at that time that earned less than 18 bucks an hour in the entire GTA. And you need them. You need them to work in retail and other sectors. Now, we can have, again, as I said before, you can have a society-wide question about whether retail workers should make $30 an hour and what those implications would be on your cost structure on the ultimate end of the cost of the goods and services that you want. But when you take a, a place like Atlantic Canada and you say, you know, Edmonston, for example, was a, was a perfect example. They had a steep, steep decline. They had a 40% decline in the number of people earning less than eight bucks, 18 bucks an hour. And in Toronto, it's going up. So basically what you're saying is in Edmonston, you cannot earn less than 18 bucks an hour. Well, what's, what are you saying? 
right? You're basically cutting off a big segment of your labor market. So I think we're not having a proper discussion. We need to understand that a labor market is going to, you're going to need people at very high skilled, semi-skilled, lower skilled, you know, a variety of different occupations and industries. And then you need to think about what's the career path in those. So yes, if you start in the personal services business, cutting hair for somebody else, you're going to make a pretty low wage. But maybe 10 years from now, you're going to own your own salon, right? So you need to think about the career path there. And you need to be talking to young people and newcomers about what that career path could be. But at the end of the day, if you just say, well, we don't want to even think about or talk about jobs at 16, 17, 18 bucks an hour, you're going to really hamper a large segment of your labor force. And what for? Other places like Toronto are solving that problem. Yeah, could I just add uh, uh, another consideration? I think that the minimum wage could be a differentiated wage depending on kind of your status as a worker. So here's a good example. <clears throat> if you're a waiter or waitress, the minimum wage is really not where you make your money. You make it on tips. And, um, you know, you, you can actually do very well in a good restaurant with good service. If you're a student, uh, I don't think that you you should have the rate for somebody who's a full-time in the workforce kind of person. So you could have a differentiated rate for people who are working to, you know, as a part-time activity, not their full-time, uh, you know, aspiration versus people who are in the workforce, they're trying to make a living, you know, uh, they need to have a, a higher uh, compensation for that. And that would help businesses a, a great deal because, they could balance their, their labor costs by having a differentiated rate. And I think they had it in the past as well. So this is not this is not a new idea, but it's one that I think should be brought to the table again. Where does the uh, conversation around remote work fit in here in, in, in terms of people being able to do jobs from regions where there's higher unemployment and where from a geographic point of view, it's actually hard for them to get get to work. It is, is this something I know, you know, we don't have the numbers to back this up yet, but, you know, I know even in industries like, like the cost customer contact industry, there, there's a lot of workplaces in New Brunswick where uh, they haven't returned to offices yet. They're, they're still working remotely and it actually may become a permanent feature in, in more and more industries in the, in the province. Does this represent an opportunity to keep people in their, in their hometowns, but offer them off the remote work, or is this something that wouldn't become statistically significant? Well, I don't know. <clears throat> I think it's happening now. Uh, former company that I was involved with, uh, Blue Ocean Contact Centers, we had 600 employees when I sold my interest in that company, and they were all working out of an office. O over time, uh, we started to uh, experiment with um, remote workers. I understand that the business today is almost all uh, remote uh, workers, which of course opens up opportunities for for people outside urban areas to uh, to do that kind of work. With technology today, you could be anywhere and do that work as long as you have good internet service. By the way, that's a <laughs> that's an important uh, qualification. So uh, I think you're right. Uh, the The problem is is that a lot of a lot of uh, really small rural communities are very old pop population wise which means that their their labor pool is limited to begin with in terms of having working age people with at least some skills to do contact center work. And, uh, you know, um, so that's the only caveat that I would put on it. But I think it, it offers a great opportunity, especially in those kinds of back office uh, businesses uh, to uh, work from anywhere. Yeah, so I would just make a couple of points. One is, the people that are moving into rural areas and bringing their high-paying IT job with them are actually hurting the housing market in these areas. So we're now starting to see, I'm doing a lot of work in Ontario in these small communities, housing prices are going through the roof and the remote workers aren't helping solve their, lo their lab local labor issues because they're bringing the job with them. So this is a bit of a challenge with remote workers, right? Is that a lot of them are IT or higher skilled professional services, lawyers and so on. And they, yes, they can work from home. So they're deciding to work from wherever. Uh, and that is pushing up uh, housing costs in, in rural areas. But I do think it does open up a lot of flexibility. I've been talking to a lot of IT uh, human resource managers in the last couple of weeks here in New Brunswick and across the region. 
And I would say that many of them are looking at remote workers, at least to supplement their workforce and giving them the option. Do you want to come in the office or do you want to stay in Bathurst or Nigawak? Uh, and it, they're hoping it will open up a wider talent pool. But that's really skills-based. If you're a graphic designer, if you're a computer programmer, if you're somebody that does a highly skilled job, uh, increasingly employers will be flexible to work around your schedule. But if you need a janitor or a truck driver or you know a personal service worker, and I have to be careful, Mark, because I, I after last at the end of that last monologue, I thought it started to sound a bit like a rant, and I'm really not in the rant business, although maybe. Anyway, so that yeah, so I just say there's two sides to that that uh, remote uh, workforce, and the other thing is taxes. Increasingly, if you're in New Brunswick and you're a remote worker making a hundred thousand or one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, Ontario is going to want those taxes or a big chunk of them. We already have this agreement with Alberta that the the workers that live in New Brunswick but work in Alberta have to pay at least some of their income taxes in Alberta, and I think you're going to start seeing that in uh, places like Ontario as well, saying, "Well, wait a minute, if you're doing work for all of our companies." And you're sitting in Nigawak, you need to be paying more of your taxes in Ontario. So we'll see how that uh, ultimately works out. And vice versa, by the way. Well, guys, this has been a great chat. I'd, I'd, I'd love to wrap up just by getting from each of you your, you know, your, your key thoughts on, on solutions uh, to this, you know, taking with us go, going forward with this. Start with you, Don. What's your wish list for how we fix this? Well, <clears throat> I, I can't. I kind of uh, outlined them earlier, but just to summarize, you know, uh, creating uh, economic opportunities uh, for full-time work is really the key to getting people off the seasonal, uh, you know, track of uh, only uh, working part of the year. How do you do that? You do that by creating uh, economic growth in nearby urban areas within a reasonable commute. I think that that's really part of it. Not everybody will want to commute even 30 minutes for, for a job. I get that. But some at least will. We need to give them the opportunities uh, to change uh, their lifestyle. I think we need to go back to what EI was in the beginning, which was a support program in between jobs. We need to, we need to enforce the, uh, the requirements to look for a job. If not, you know, tough love, uh, you know, lose those benefits and force people to make different choices because right now they don't have to. Um, I would I would take people off <clears throat> the unemployment rolls who are clearly uh, not available for the workforce, create the income supplement uh, category, take them out of the unemployment rate so that we have a better, truer sense of real unemployment uh, for employers to look at. And then I think we should o- open up um, immigration to uh, more unskilled, semi-skilled people to uh, uh, fill the jobs that clearly Canadians are are not uh, not that interested in, and and perhaps as a way uh, to that, uh, uh, create more opportunities for foreign temporary workers who can uh, maybe eventually become um, uh, citizens of this country. Yeah, I, I would just say that it's very hard. Most big change in society, these big systemic changes happen because of a crisis. Uh, you know, if you think about New Zealand and the debt crisis in the, in the 80s and 90s, and even us when we went through that massive uh, uh, reset in the uh, early 90s, right, when governments had to come to grips with, with large provincial and federal debt levels. So the problem with us is that we're kind of percolating along and there's no real sense of urgency. You know, if you look, like Don said, we already the population is starting to grow again. So, you know, does that, that's a great thing. I think the population has to grow even faster. But my point is, it's not helping in these sort of structural questions about how you reform the EI program or, or wean yourself off equalization over time or whatever. So I don't know how to do it without any, without a massive crisis. And I don't know that there's a massive crisis. I think Newfoundland and Labrador might be heading for a, a, a come to Jesus moment, but I'm not sure about the maritime. So I think in the absence of a massive crisis, we need to just put it on the table with our citizens that unless we can get our act together, grow the population, attract young migrants here, young entrepreneurs, uh, encourage investment into key industries and reform these programs that we've been talking about, that we're just not going to achieve our potential as a region. So you almost have to, instead of the stick, use the carrot, because I'm not sure. I mean, if our back was against the wall, if we were heading for bankruptcy in Atlantic Canada or in the Maritimes, there'd be more of an urgency to make these changes. But And even natural resources development, which we will be talking about in, in upcoming podcasts. But 
um, without that sense of urgency, without that real sense that we're going to hit a wall, I don't see that you can gain public support because everybody's feeling pretty good these days, right? I, I wish I was, you know, Don's pollster uh, because they're out, they're out asking people how you're feeling and most of them say, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. Well, if you're feeling pretty good, then you don't want government coming along and saying, we're going to slash this, we're going to cut that, we've got to change this. Well, thanks a lot, guys. It's great, great to chat with you. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Mark. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.